Good morning, Charlton. It is my joy to worship with you. I take that as a really great honor. As busy, as hectic as our lives are, it somehow gives me some sort of equilibrium to hear you sing and worship together. So let's continually do that as you open up the Word of God today. As you have heard already, we are beginning a new sermon series called Chelton's DNA. Who are we as a church? Have you thought about that? And why does it really matter? Why do we care about what we believe? Chelton, we are not just for ourselves. We are not here to just pat our back. We are great. We are, in other words, we are not self-consuming institution or movement, but we exist first and foremost to upward worship our triune God inward to care and to nurture one another in truth and love and to share the very good news of Jesus Christ to the world who is looking for that hope. And today, we will kick off our six-week series on Chelton's DNA. That's who we are. So as we kick off our, this six-week series, first and foremost, we will talk about why worship matters. Chelton, worship really matters more than you and I realize. The English word worship comes from the old English phrase, worth shape. You are shaped by the worth of something. What do you think it's worth it? Then you will spend time on it, and we are the product of exposure. More we illuminate over it, more we spend time on it, we are shaped by that. And we as a church believe that worship is what shapes everything that we do. So Christian life really is a life of monopoly in one sense. Worship is not one thing we do, and there's many things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's your family life. There's your work life. No. Worship shapes everything that we do. Worship, the worth shape, is placed at the top of the worth shape hierarchy, and everything trickles down from that. So worship is not just one part, but it is one that affects through which we see the entire world. So what is worth it to you? What is your worth shape that you are desperately longing today? May I really tell you, I know our lives are busy. I know our attention just scattered to so many things and we are demanded whether it be the schooling of children, whether it be your work, whether it be thinking about retirement, whether it be even dreaming about vacation. And we are like, oh, God, this is too much. But if, as Jim said it earlier, if Jesus really died for me, and if Jesus really rose from the dead, all will be well. It really will be Okay. That worship should have trickled on effect in all that you think, all that you are. And I pray that you will find that rest today as you worship him. I honestly don't know what I do with my life if there's no such thing as worship. So I hope and pray that the Lord will speak to us as we talk about why worship matters. Please open up your word to Psalm 95. That's where we will spend our time in. I'll walk through a psalm in, in its entirety. So it would be a good idea, whether it be cell phone, whether it be the word, if you don't have it, 
ask the person next to you, or you can just listen to me as I read. Um, this psalm will teach us about why worship really matters, and I'll read in its entirety, and we will walk through this psalm together as a church this morning. Psalm 95, 1 through 11, hear the word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and exalt him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they said they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is the reading of God's word. Two things we learn from this psalm. First, we learn from this psalm the true element of worship. What does the true worship look like? What is it made out of? And then Psalmist moves into, uh, give us the warning against and the consequence of false worship. When something else takes place, when the worth-shaped pyramid at the top of it, if it takes something else and worshiping our triune God, it will have a trickle-down effect. So first, we'll talk about the element of true worship, why worship really matters. And second, the warning against and the consequence of false worship. Let's dive in this psalm. The background of this psalm is this. We don't know. I wish I can tell you according to this and that and that. We don't know exact setting of this psalm. But according to the 3rd century Jewish history and rule book, Mishnah, they believe this is a festival liturgy in a temple setting known as New Year's Psalm. That's when it's sung and played. But this psalm acknowledged our God as the king above all kings. It's a worship psalm. But let me point out something that is very, very obvious. What is the object of the worship from the psalmist? The, his Hebrews tell that this is written by the David, as the book of Hebrews quotes that. But verse 1, what does, David, does the psalmist say here? Come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord, capital L or R-D. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God. Verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Verse 7, for he is our God. So many kings of the earth demand praise to himself. If I translate that even our narcissistic ego wants approval, recognition. If I translate verse 1 through 6, 3, 6, 7 with our own ego, how kings want praise to himself, it goes, come. Sing to me, 
Verse 3, for I am great. Verse 6, submit to my will. Verse 7, for I am great. So many kings of the history, even though when you go to North Korea, my neighborhood country where I grew up, the dictator demanded praise. They literally sing to him on their birthday and they worship him. And all many, many narcissistic people tell, please tell me that I am great. We crave for that. But King David, he's nothing. Worship me. I am great. No, worship Yahweh, our capital R-O-R-D. He is the object of worship. And if you think about it, as it begins, even before he's worshiping our God for his hand, meaning all the great things that he's done, he's worshiping his conscience. Worship him for just who he is. That allows the psalmist to worship God throughout the book of Psalms, not only in prosperity, but also in poverty, also in lament. Worship him. He is worthy of our praise. At the top of our worth-shaped pyramid, our triune God exists, and he is worthy of all our worship. So first, we learn the true object of worship is our triune God. Second thing we learn, how can we be an engaged worshiper in our true worship? Notice the type of language that the psalmist used in verse 1 and 2. Notice how he uses such an emotive language. You see the language he chooses. Come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and exalt him with music and song. His heart is emotion. His heart is very engaged in worshiping our God. Not only that, read verse 3 to 5. Now, he does not only engage emotion, his heart, but he engages his mind, rationale, as he recognizes all the great things that he has done. Now, Psalmist is thinking about this. For the Lord is great God. He's the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. First, he engages emotion and heart, sing, joy, all that. And then let me think about it. He's a great God. Oh, mountain peaks belong to him. Even the sea is his. He's a great God. But not only his emotion, not only his mind. Notice verse 6, now what he engages. He engages his volition, his will. Let us come. Let us now bow down in worship. Let us do something about it. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Here the psalmist is engaging his heart and mind. So let us submit ourselves to him. Let us do something about it. The true worship psalmist engages every single being every single cell of his DNA is crying out in worship, engaging his emotion, engaging his mind, engaging his will and volition and everything to praise him and worship him. How engaged the worshiper are you? We all tend to lean one way or the another way. Some of us are very emotive worshiper. We're very passionate, zealous, nothing wrong with that. That's great. But if you are just emotive worshiper at the expense of your mind, you don't really think about what you worship, and your will, you don't really, life is not changed by what way you feel. It's oftentimes if you are only engaging in emotive worship, you often sometimes end up worshiping your own feeling. 
the elation, catharsis. Youth, I've gone to many youth retreats, and you, some of you are about to go. Yes, meet the Lord, experience the mountaintop. But please know that mountaintop emotive experience, the catharsis, needs to be informed by the truth of the word. Think about it, and your lives ought to be changed as a result. I often wondered, why is my life not changing? Man, I just met the Lord. That was greatest worship experience. But I often just, in the end, worship my own feeling as it is. Some of us are very cognitive, rational worshiper only at the expense of emotion and will. Some of you who are just only engaged in the cognitive worship, oftentimes you don't really come to worship, but you often come to measure. Jin, let me see what you got. Tell me, satisfy my intellectual curiosity. That's all I care. It's very easy to be the judge rather than worshiper. We know our tendency deep in down heart. Oftentimes when you're just cognitive worship only without even really meditating, dwelling in the heart, and your life is changed as a result of what you meditate on, you become the judge and you become the measurer of worship rather than being a worshiper. So your heart deep down sometimes is rather than being filled with joy and gratitude, it's often filled with actually guilt. Am I really good enough? And all. If you're there, if you're today thinking, man, am I just mind-only worshiper? I don't feel anything. No, I want to let you know the way you worship will might different from those who are very emotive worshiper. But that does not mean you are not worshiping the Lord. But if you are there today, I want you to know if you are thinking, oh, God, oh, help me. I just don't feel much. That actually means that you have heart before the Lord. If you're really absent, you won't even think about it, feel it. So set free from the burden. Set free from the guilt. And then if your heart is so cold, you just want your intellectual curiosity satisfied, sit at the foot of the cross. Just sit on it. Think about it since you're so good at cognitive, rational thinking until it begins to melt your heart. Some of us are very will-driven worshiper at the expense of emotion and mind. All we care is that you are here. Your parents dragged you. But your heart, your, what you're thinking of is completely elsewhere. You're just, okay, I got to do the right thing. I'm here, God, I'm bowing down before you. I'm worshiping. But your heart and your mind is completely elsewhere. And worship is not worship. Worship becomes work. It does not give you the rest. But you're just doing, going through the motion. For some of us who've known Jesus Christ for a long time, sometimes we are victim of that too. We do the right thing. Thank you. You showed up to the church. But our heart and minds are completely elsewhere. God, I'm thinking about this. I'm feeling that. Am I really worshiping you? As a result, even coming to a church is just a work, not a rest. Where are you today? Are you a skillful and engaged worshiper engaging in all this? If you're leaning toward one or the another, ask you, sit at the foot of the cross today. Sit there. Just don't say, Jesus died for me. He rose. Let me move on. Now think about all these implications. Let it melt your heart to the degree that it melts your heart. You will slowly and surely see that your life is being transformed. Your heart is engaged. You think about it. And you move out and live out accordingly.
Some of us engage emotion and mind, but no will. You know what that's called? That's called consumeristic worshiper. You're just here for worship, satisfying your heart. Oh, man, that was great cathartic experience. Oh, God's great. But you live a completely different life. You're hearers only, not doers. Some of us are only mind and will at the expense of your heart. That calls legalism. You think what is right, so you do what is right and judge all others who are weak, not being able to live that out. The spiritual trichotomy, that tripod must go together. But when your emotion, rational, and will worships our triune God, you are, your whole being is an engaged worshiper. Where are you today? See how psalmist engages his whole being here. Third thing we learn about true element of worship, it's another very obvious thing that we miss it. But do you see the psalmist is not worshiping himself? What is he doing? Verse 1, come, let us why don't you join me in worship? Verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Verse 6, come, let us bow down. It's all plural. Church, we live in hyper-individualistic society. We believe worship is just a me and God. We are tight. Yes, there is vertical elemental worship, but there is also corporate aspect of worship that I cannot emphasize enough. See, I get so excited when I take vacation. Sunday, Sunday come and I cannot wait to visit other churches and see how they worship. Because as I worship with others, I only learn more about God. For some of us, you are more because where your upbringing, where your culture, you are leaning more toward God of justice. He's right, he's wrong. On the other side, some of you, we all have a different culture. Some of you lean more toward God of grace. Which one's right, God of justice or God of grace? Yes, both. Some of us lean toward God the king. He's sovereign. He's the ruler. Demand our respect. Some of us lean toward God the father. He's loving. He's affectionate. He's near. Which one is true? Both. But as you worship together as a corporate body of believer, you only get to learn more about God. You only get to encourage one another more, lay one another's preference, and worship God wholeheartedly because you get to learn more about God. What am I trying to say? What are you trying to say, Jen? It's this. Come to church, Shelton. Yeah, I mean that. I always get so surprised how we take Sunday morning so casually. But corporate worship, we cannot live without that. I hope then pray that Lord will continually convict your heart. Worth the shape, that top of the pyramid should be worship. And here, Psalmist is encouraging others, let's go, let's go to the temple and worship the Lord. That's who we are. We believe that as a church, importance of worship, not only individually, but also corporate worship. There is a saying that in my previous generation, people used to give three days per week to the church. But now, people give three hours per month to church. Meaning, people used to come to church Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, three days a week. Now, people come to church three hours per month. Christians, once a month. That's all we give to corporate worship. No, worship matters. If that really is what we value as a church, I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you something. 
I'm not trying to say, hey, it's great, but I really mean that. It will be the flourishing of your soul. And because of you are here, I am edified. Because you are here, someone else is edified by your presence. As you worship together, we knock off rough edges on one another. We lay down our preference, and we love one another, serve one another. Church, do you worship God not only individualistically, but also corporately? So we, from this psalm, we learn the true elemental worship, that the proper object of worship is our triune God, not our fragile ego. And worship involves our every being, heart, mind, and will. We live out. And also worship leads to not only individual worship, but also corporate worship, encouraging one another to join God. Worship matters. Now, second, Let's talk about the warning against and the consequence of false worship. Read with me second half of verse 7 through 11. This is rather daunting, but bear with me. I'll explain in a moment. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Whoa, what just happened? I want to ask a psalmist, hey, psalmist, what went wrong? You began with, come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. It ended with, they shall never enter my rest. The end. Is that even the same psalm? Is that really, how can it take such a dramatic turn? I'm glad that you asked. Uh, well, thanks for asking. In case you didn't, I'm asking for you. As a result, some scholars believe that these are two separate psalms just put together randomly. No, it is not. It is the one unit, absolute unit. And I'll explain why. So, this is what Psalmist is explaining is Psalmist is remembering the tragic history of Israelite. These Israelites saw how God has delivered them out of Egypt, their bondage and slavery, to the promised land, promised rest. But while they are leading from the Exodus, living their life in the wilderness, they worship the idol at the top of their worth shape. They forget all the great things that God has done. They worship idols. And here, this psalmist specifically remembers in verse 8 what happened at Meribah and Massa. Is they complain, we are about to die, God. I got nothing left. I'm thirsty. But what is so ironic and unfortunate about that passage, psalmist is remembering the second half of Exodus 15, where people in Meribah, which means quarreling, Massa, which means testing, the psalm, these people are quarreling and testing God, completely forgetting what God just has done. The first half of Exodus 15, the second half of Exodus 15 is them, give me water, I'm dying. The first half of Exodus 15 is remembering all the great things God has done. It's the song of Moses and Miriam. It says, I'll sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and drivers he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Amen. God, I'm about to die. I don't have water. Completely forgets all the great things that God has done. They're just completely testing God. You know, God still comes through compassion. God, verse chapter 16, Exodus, there's manna. God comes through 
What happened? You think Israelite learned? Chapter 17, God, I'm thirsty again. I'm about to die. That's who we are, completely forgetting all the great things that he has done. And what happened? Verse 9, as a result, your ancestor tested me. That's the word massa means, right? They tested me. They tried me. Though they had seen what I did, they have seen what I did. I led them out of bondage with ten plague and all the miracles. They have seen what I did. But you just complain? What are you doing? What is top of your worth-shaped pyramid? For 40 years in the wilderness, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have known not my ways. Shelton, God is not worthy of your test, but worthy of your trust. Do you know how Israelite became so quarreling and testing God? I'm not trying to over-spiritualize or mystify this, but Martin Luther, in his exposition, his commentary of Ten Commandments, he says that you never break second through tenth commandment without breaking the first commandment. What is first commandment? Have no other gods before me. What is it about? Worship. Well, let's talk about very last commandment, tenth commandment. You shall not covet. I want this so bad. When you want that, when you become like that, first you're already broken worshiping God first. You said, I want this so much at the top of my worth shape. I want money. I want this water so much more than you that you never break second through tenth commandment without first commandment. So what God is saying, there are people whose hearts go astray. They have given their hearts away. What is the sovereign result of that? Verse 10, verse 11. I mean, what does it end? This psalm. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Think about that. Why does that matter so much to us, church? It's because of this. We are like Israelites. God has led us out of Egypt from our bondage of sin and slavery. We are in the wilderness going to our promised rest. But when you obsess over, I want this so much, to replace that worth shape, top of a pyramid with something else that you desire, we will never experience the rest of our soul. With the consequence of false worship, what is it that you put so much at the top of your worth shape? Your heart will always be restless, and we never be able to experience the true promise, the rest. Yeah, those people die in the wilderness because they are like, God, I would rather go back to Egypt. I don't trust you. They're always obsessed and quarreling, testing God. As a result, they never enter the promised rest. Oftentimes, I am like the church. I'm like, God, I know you have come through. But God, I am so worried about this. I don't know what to do. Why am I so obsessed over this? Before I even worry about that, first I broke the first commandment. I neglected worshiping. God, Jesus, if you really died for me, if you love me that much, at the same time, you conquered the death. You rose from the dead, and you promised that you would come back. If I really worship that, then Shelton, all will be well. It really will be okay. What is your heart so restless? Oftentimes, it's the result of not properly worshiping our trying God first and foremost. For some of us, that very thing worth shape when he says, thou shalt not covet. Some of us, it's a security, comfort, money that we desire so much. God, you don't know how tight I am. Every time stock market crash, I crash. Every time my retirement account shrivel, I shrivel. 
Or for some of us, you take so much pride in, guess what, Jin? I saved 15% on this thing. Why are you so frugal and obsessive about every dollar you save? Money has hold over you. St. Augustine is one of the great theologians who has lived, brilliant mind, um, very influential Christian. In his book, The City of God and City of Man, he compares the city of God and city of man, what that looks like. And he says this, in the city of God, you walk on gold and love others. But in the city of man, you love gold and walk on others. Church, when your worship hierarchy is something else than triune God, all you feel, watch the result of that. Your heart is so restless. Your heart is dependent on the stock market. Your heart is dependent on how much you can save two bucks on this sale, how frugal you can be. For some of us, it may be you're trying to find your worth shape through your validation, through your work. A couple of years ago, I read this article in The Atlantic. Um, I knew that the title didn't catch my attention, but the subheading really caught my attention. The title of the article was, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. The subheading read this, For the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity-promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. In that article, Derek Thompson writes this, perhaps long hours are part of an arms race for status and income among the moneyed elite. Or maybe the logic here isn't economic at all. It's emotional, even spiritual. The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sunday. It's where they feel most themselves. When you take that work, those are good things. At the top of your worth shape, it will have trickle-down effect. And your heart result, you will never enter my rest that God promises. What is that? Church, do not live in the wilderness looking back. But look to the promised rest. Do you want to foretaste the glimpse of Zion today? Worship him. That is the promised rest that we can find in Christ. I don't think anyone really understood it better than St. Augustine, the early church father. In his book, Confession, which is autobiography, for Augustine struggled enormously with beauty, romantic love, and sexual lust. And he wanted it so much. What does that lead to? When he placed that at the top of worth shape, just pursuing after that, restless. Listen to what he says in his book, Confession. I cared for nothing but to love and to be loved. Love and lust together seedeth within me. In my tender youth, they swept me away and plunged me in the whirlpool of sin. I was tossed and spilled floundering in the broiling sea of my fornication. I went on my way farther and farther from you, proud in my distress and restless in fatigue, sowing more and more seed whose crop was grief. Try to find your rest from whatever you're looking for. Some of us trying to find the rest through how well we are doing physically, our health. Our physical body fails, weird life is just falling apart. Some of us trying to find the rest 
through how well our children are doing. When your children are doing well, you might experience momentary rest, but when your children fall, you will fall too. But if your true top of hierarchy, worship, is worshiping our triune God, then you will find rest. Some of us, people like me, sometimes I value so much rest. At the top of my rest is rest. Top of my worth-shaped hierarchy is rest. But you know what there leads to? I seek rest, but I'm restless. I want comfort, well, I'm comfortless. Why? Because I did neglect, I broke the first commandment first. What is first and foremost true? Worshiping our triune God. Church, are you eager to worship? When we worship our triune God, if you want to experience foretaste of heaven today, worship him. We are a creature of worship. We are made for that. Let us enter the promised rest rather than trying to find the rest in all the great things, comfort of the earth, because in the end, it will only lead you to restless. I do think St. Augustine must have Psalm 95 in his mind when he wrote this very opening chapter in his book of Confession because he nailed everything in this opening section. I'll read that in a moment. But what have we learned in the psalm today? The true worshiper knows who to worship. We don't demand praise to our fragile ego. We worship him. He deserves worship. And we engage our every being, every cell, DNA cries out in worship, your emotion, your heart, your will. And we don't only worship individually, but also eager to gather, worship together as a corporate people of God. When we don't do that, when we replace our worshiping of trying God with something else, we just keep looking back in our bondage, our Egypt, rather than looking forward to our promised Zion. All we feel, whether that Egypt, for you, maybe money, for you, maybe health, for you, maybe your, I don't know, fill the gap for you. You know the cry of your heart. All we experience is restless. But do you want to find rest? Worship God. This is what Augustine says in his very first chapter, opening chapter of his autobiography, Confession, his journal entry. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and of your wisdom. There is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Church, do you rest in God today? May we worship him. May we find rest in him. If you are not, we encourage you to dwell at the foot of the cross. I mean, I don't know how I live if, without believing that Jesus loved me to death. If Jesus didn't love me to death, then I'll be constantly worried about validation from you. Tell me how great I am. I need my fragile ego to be met. But oh, the God of the universe loved me that much? I'll be okay when people don't like me. Oh, at the same time, God of the universe rose from the dead? He's that capable? I shall be okay. Life is hard. I, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do. But when I trust in that, all shall be well. Will you worship him first? Sit at the foot of the cross. Jesus loved you to death, and he rose from the dead, and then he has promised, Chelton, I'll bring you the ultimate rest one day. I will come back once again, and you will be ushered into the Zion with me. Until that day, would you like to foretaste the glimpse of heaven, the glimpse of rest? Let us worship him.
a restless heart, would you behold Jesus Christ crucified? And let us behold him until our hearts begin to melt, until our thoughts are informed that at the top of our worth shape is our triune God, and we leave that out. We trickle down effect in everything that we do as a church. Let us worship together. Let's pray. God, we believe that we are worshipful creatures. And God, I know my heart, my heart really is restless until they find rest in you. God, we don't want to be like those Israelites who tested you and married by Massa. They quarreled and they tested you. They forgot all the great things that you have done in the Egypt. But at the same time, oh Lord, I confess that that's me. I get so obsessed about this and that, and I forfeit my promised rest. But, oh God, help me to look forward to the promised rest, the Zion that is to come, and fill our hearts with joy, inform our mind, and may we just never be the consumer worshipers who hear things and move away. But may our lives, may our will be submissive and changed by you because we have worshipped and encountered the risen Savior. Oh God, we lift up the body of Shelton that we will be marked, our DNA will be marked by worshiping you, eager to worship individually and corporately. We dedicate our church to you. It is your church. And help us to submit to your will and guidance in our lives. We lift ourselves to you. Help us. We look to you for rest that only you can give. In your precious name we pray. Amen.